How many years have flown by and we seem to end up in the same place as we were the year before? If we want to grow in our relationship with God, there's one thing we can do in 2024 that will make more difference than anything else. Read the Bible. I'll be reading the Bible this year, and I invite you to read it with me in a Bible reading program called Reading the Bible Lands. It includes Bible Lands photos, videos, and devotionals, and live Zoom calls with me. Find out more at readingthebiblelands.com. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. When we think about it, it's so easy to trust God for those things that we already trust God for. But what about those other parts of life? In some cases, the hardship that you're facing could be God shining a spotlight on an area of your life that needs to trust Him. Well, in today's episode, we're learning from King Asa in 1 Kings chapter 15 about what it means to be wholly devoted to the Lord. You know, when Asa began his reign over Judah, he did so much right. But there were some areas that weren't fully committed to God, and Asa didn't deal with them. And the consequences were, well, we'll see what happened. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. Well, it's great to see you. Great to be back from Israel. Got back this week. And just in time, I think I, two ships passing in the night with the Brainers over here, was hoping that they could lead our tour at the Garden Tomb. But instead, uh, I think, was his name Carlos? Is that the, uh, doesn't ring a bell? Maybe someone else. Anyway, they say they knew you well. <laughs> and I probably getting the name wrong, but... Uh, but he's going to visit in December. He said he's going to visit the class. Yes, he's coming to our house. Stefano. Stefano. I don't know why. What's his last name? Okay. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, he, uh, he, he seemed like a great guy, though I can't remember his name. But he'll be here in class. So. Well, anyway, on the flight back, uh, I got to experience one of those, what do they call them? Uh, emotional help dogs, one of those uh, emotional support dogs. But now it's like technically it's not supposed to be emotional support. It's supposed to be like you drive. Now they're you have to pay for them to come as a pet because you can't. There's no more emotional support unless they're actually helping you with some disability. Anyway, I, I forget what the laws are, but the bottom line is there was a dog next to me. Actually, two dogs next to me on the whole flight from New York. And I've got a picture. I took a picture of uh, this dog. Look at him. He, he spent most of the trip right there between my legs. <laughs> look, 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 at, look at the next picture. Look at the next picture. As soon as I gave him any attention, he immediately was up and paused in my lap and just wanted to be petted like the whole trip. 
And his owner, his owner fell, fell asleep in the first five minutes. So it was, it was me and this dog for four hours from JFK. And I don't know if you can tell, but next to the knee of the owner, which is the guy there to my left, there's another dog crammed in the space. So there were three of us in three chairs, plus these two dogs, for four hours as we flew. And this little precious dog and I got to be well acquainted. (laughs) By the time that the flight was over, I had dog hair all over me. I, I wasn't sure if this dog was offering emotional support to the owner or if I was offering emotional support to this dog. <laughs> because... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. But we want that kind of security. Okay, you can please take that image down. We want security, whether it's through dogs or through people or whatever. We need it. And you probably heard that our president traveled to Israel this past week to the Middle East, and Israel was his first stop. And his entourage, though, arrived days before he did. I'm trying to remember. I think it was Wednesday he arrived in Jerusalem, and we arrived, I think, on Monday or thereabouts. And the helicopters were there all over as well. In fact, at one point, I heard helicopters outside my hotel room and looked outside the window and there were like three or four American helicopters flying over Jerusalem. And the president's not even there for like two more days. As we're driving down the road, there's all these American flags everywhere. And so I asked our guide, I said, this is kind of a big deal, isn't it? And she said, oh yes, anytime an American president comes to Israel, it's a big deal. And I just got to thinking about that, aside from the fact that it was, I mean, it's probably a very good thing, I guess, in some sense for Israel to have America, an American representative of that stature come and visit, but it's kind of a hassle for everyone to deal with. Roads were shut down. We had scheduled to go visit a particular museum, and on a particular day, and because the president had chosen to go on that same day, guess who had to move? It wasn't the president. It was us. I wanted to show up and say, you know, he actually works for me. <laughs> but I'm not sure that would have worked. <laughs> so we rescheduled stuff, and we roads were closed. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing lesson in how diplomacy works in the Middle East. And I I was thinking about the fact that it's really all for his security. And that's really what it's for. It's to keep him safe. And that's valid. It's valid. I remember when my family went years ago to the White House, we had to get, like, checked out before we went, like months ahead of time. Reservations, they looked at at our background, make sure that we weren't going to go into the White House and, you know, do anything we shouldn't do while we're there. And, of course, everything checked out. We went and we visited. But even still, we were there, and we couldn't go to the second floor. We just, on the first floor. That's where the visitors visit. But there is there are barriers between the common people and the President of the United States. You can't just waltz in. You know, I remember reading stuff back in 
the uh, 1800s where people during Lincoln's administration could just walk into the White House and talk to the president. Can you imagine doing that today? There is no way that could happen. But all of these things are set up, these barriers are set up to protect the president. Now, think back in Old Testament. Think back in the days of the temple, or even better still, the tabernacle. You had barriers between the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, and you. And, and every barrier represented a more narrow amount of people that could access it. Like the outer, the outer uh, main area of the tabernacle, anybody could come in. But then in certain places, like if you look fast forward to the temple, you had the court of the women, and the women could only go this far. You had the court of the men. You could only go, men could only go this far. You had the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could only go this far. You had uh, the priests could only go into the tabernacle or the temple itself. And then inside there, you had the Holy of Holies. Only one man could go only one time a year, one day a year. And all of that was not to protect God, but it was to protect the people from God. Because you don't enter into holiness, the presence of holiness, without a sacrifice or without your sins forgiven. I remember reading about the accounts of the Titanic sinking and when they determined that it was going down. They determined this a couple of hours before it sank, and at the time it didn't seem like there was any problem. I mean, yeah, maybe it was listing just a little bit, but it was nice and warm in the stateroom, but it was hard to convince people in the dead of the night, in the cold of the night, to get out on that little rickety lifeboat and lower into the cold Atlantic when I'd rather just stay right here on the deck where it was nice and warm. The reality is, this is where you die. This is where you live. Security was in the most odd place that night. I remember reading when the Pentagon was hit at uh, 9-11, one of the very few people that survived a particular place when the Pentagon was struck this man said, I felt like I was in the safest place in the world, and then boom. You see, we aren't any more secure in one place or another, whether we are in a, pre a president in a foreign country or a president in his own house or a person on the unsinkable ship of the century or in the Pentagon, the safest place of the world. We are safe because of God, no matter where we are. Life can surprise us. There is no security, there is no safety, there is no salvation apart from God. Let's look together at the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 14. We are in a series where we're taking just a look at a single king, ten kings actually, ten different lessons from ten different kings throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles. And we're looking today at a man named Asa, A-S-A, -A, Asa. Don't know a lot about Asa. This is sort of an obscure king from the Old Testament, but I tell you, he was one of the good ones, mostly. One of the good ones. Remember, Chronicles has a different purpose than Kings. We've talked about this with regard to the Gospels, but it's also true regarding Kings and Chronicles. 
Like, why have the book of Luke when we've got Matthew? Why have Mark when we have John? Because they all say something different about Jesus. We need the full spectrum of each of these biographies to get a full picture of what Christ is like or the purpose of the ministry of Christ. Kings and Chronicles is very similar. I remember in a church one time, uh, this man, we were in some Bible reading program or whatever, and he said, you know, I'm not really reading First and Second Chronicles. I've already read that in First and Second Kings. And that's sort of the mindset sometimes. It's like it all sort of seems the same. But if you understand the difference between the purpose between Kings and Chronicles, then maybe Chronicles has a reason to read it. Kings was written prior to the exile, and it lists all the bad stuff. I mean, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel had 20 kings. They were all bad, and we get to hear about them. Southern, southern uh, nation, Judah, had 20 kings. About eight of them were good, and we get to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly there. But, and all of that was to show all the bad stuff that happened to justify the exile. Why did the exile happen? Just read First and Second Kings, and you'll see why the exile happened. But First and Second Chronicles now is written after the exile about the events that occurred before the exile, but from a different vantage. The purpose of First and Second Chronicles is not to list all the bad stuff. It's to list a lot of the good stuff showing God blesses obedience. And it's specifically focused on the line of David and the kings from the line of David that had a passion to build the temple. Why would that matter? Because when you go back into the land, there's no temple. And, and the author wanted to encourage the people returning to the land to rebuild the temple, and God blesses that. So it's two different purposes for the same history. Asa was one who was passionate about the things of God. So let's read a little bit about Asa, get a little bit of an introduction to him, and then we'll get into his dilemma, which is really our dilemma. Second Chronicles 14, look at verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, since the land was undisturbed, and there was no one at war with him during those years, because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is ours." Because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. So you can see why a returning exile to the land would be encouraged by reading this. Hey, let's build and we'll prosper. It was reading history in which God was faithful to show, you know what? If we do that, God will be faithful to us. Asa is one of the few godly kings that reigned after David, and we see from Asa that godliness is not just talk. It's not just teaching truth. It's living truth. Asa was committed to doing this. He was a grandson of Rehoboam. Remember, Rehoboam was that, that king that gave that royally wrong response two generations, uh, or the generation right after Solomon. 
and the kingdom split at that time. And yet Rehoboam is the uh, grandson of, I'm sorry, uh, Asa is the grandson of Rehoboam, the great-grandson of Solomon. And verse 1 introduces us here to this king. Uh, We're going to read here in just a few minutes how he tore down his grandmother's pagan Asherah pole. Now, you know you're committed to God when you tear down grandma's pole. You know? (laughs) This has been a tradition. You tear down grandma's pole, and you know you are serious about your walk with God. Of course, it makes it awkward at Thanksgiving. But as a result of his reforms, God blesses Judah, and we're told they prosper. Look at verse 8, what happens next. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them valiant warriors. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. Marashah is southwest of Jerusalem. It's in a little buffer zone between the Philistine area and the hill country. And whoever controlled that buffer zone was was strong. You wanted to control that to keep the Philistines away. Well, it's not just the Philistines that were the problem, but this Ethiopian from the direction of Egypt comes up with a million men in his army and 300 chariots. And Asa, if you do the math in verse 8, only has 580,000. So like half, half of the army that's come out against them. It's one thing to trust God and take down grandma's pole. It's another thing to trust God and face an army twice your number. And he goes down to Marashah and faces him in this valley. Kind of neat, but I was at this place just like four days ago, Marashah. And it's hot. (laughs) Hot in July in Israel. But uh, it was a great place for a battle. And I just sort of stood there and looked around at the fields. We're not exactly sure where this valley of Zephathah is, but wherever it is, it's right there by Marashah in that valley. It's the same valley that, interestingly, Micah the prophet grew in. In fact, from Marashah, you can look a couple of miles away and see a tell called Morasheth Gath. That's where Micah the prophet is from. And, of course, Micah hadn't come along yet. He's coming along soon. But in this, at this time, Asa goes down there and faces them in this battle. And look at what Asa prays. Verse 11, Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name, have come out against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. 
and they carried away very much plunder. What a great prayer. Isn't that a great prayer? There's no one besides you to help. Asa is saying, we may have all the security in the world, but when it comes down to it, God, you alone are our security. There's nobody but you to help in the battle between the weak and the strong. And God gave them victory, and it says that the Asa chased them as far as Gerar, in other words, all the, all the way back to their border. They couldn't recover, and history goes on from this point and shows that they didn't have any more interference from Egypt for about 150 years. So this was a very significant victory. And God had put Asa in a place where he realizes that there's no one that can help him but God. You ever been in a place like that? Your money can't fix it. Doctors maybe can't fix it. Getting there fast enough isn't going to help. Only God. Only God. And if God doesn't show up, nothing helps. I remember one time a family member was in a bad way and Kathy and I were restricted by distance where we couldn't get there. You know, it helps if you're there because you feel like you're sort of in control, even though when you're there, you get there, you realize you're not in control. But when you, when there's a family member that is struggling, like life and death struggling, and you're at a distance, you're utterly helpless. All you have is God. All you have is prayer. And I remember Kathy and us and me praying, and uh, there is no feeling like desperation when you realize all I can do is pray. This is where Asa was. Yes, Asa trusted God enough to remove the idols, but would Asa trust God enough against an army that outmanned him and outgunned him? And he did. He did. And God showed up for him. I read about a Gallup poll that had some very interesting results. It revealed that people who experience a remarkable physical or psychological healing, 63% say that their religious faith is, quote, the most important influence in their lives. But those who have never had any kind of an affliction, only 28% say that their faith is important. In other words, Affliction often reveals what we're trusting in. That wasn't the purpose of that Gallup poll, but that's what I see in it. Affliction shows who we're trusting in. Statistics back up what the Bible reveals, that who we trust and rely on best is best revealed when we have nothing else to hold on to. God says, trust me first. Well, Asa did, and God showed up. Now, look at chapter 15 at what God told Asa after this wonderful victory. You'd think the lesson was learned, but actually now is the teachable moment. Verse 1, Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him, and if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Interesting. Hey everyone, Wayne here. 
We have all heard about the missionary journeys of the great Apostle Paul, but there's nothing like seeing these biblical places for yourself. Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so many more places. How would you like to see all of these places for real? Well, you can. Registrations are well underway for my upcoming tour to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. There's still room for you to experience these places that will change the way you read the New Testament, I'm certain. Check out the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com tours. And now, back to the podcast. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Interesting. Now, it's, it's important we keep this in context. God isn't saying, by the way, if you, you know, if you forsake him, then you're going to lose your salvation and go to hell. That's not at all what he means. He's saying that Asa sought God and God let him find him. God showed up for him in this area of life. But trust is not a one-and-done thing. It is a daily thing. It is something that we come to God every single day. Every time we crack open this book and glean truth from it, it's to help us trust him more and more. It's to, it's to re- help us realize that our dependence on God is greater and greater. The more we grow, the more we realize how we are utterly dependent on God, that there is no security apart from God. And if we're not getting that from the Scriptures, if for some reason we are feeling more and more distant from God every time we read the Bible, then something's wrong. We should feel closer and closer, more and more dependent on Him. And so this prophet comes to Asa and says, Asa, great job. Be sure to keep it up because you can't coast off of this victory. You've got to walk with God every single day. If you follow him, if you seek him, he will let you find him. What a great promise. But that coin has a flip side. If you forsake him, he will forsake you, meaning... uh, you may not have that victory that you're banking on. Look at verse 3. He gives a reason or or an illustration of what he just taught. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law, but in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city. For God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Now, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities of which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them, for many defected to him 
from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So what's he saying? Not only did Asa do a great job down south in in his own country, but when the people of the north, particularly the tribes of, uh, are mentioned here, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, when these people saw God's blessing Judah, these people defected to go down south. Incidentally, you remember back uh, a couple weeks or so back, this was exactly what Jeroboam feared would happen. Jeroboam realizes we've got two countries, two kings, two capitals. And so Jeroboam set up an alternate place of worship, lest people go back and worship down south. And that's exactly what they were doing. Jeroboam knew what would happen. And they did that. They defected, and they wanted to be faithful. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, these particular people from that, not the whole tribe, but some people from those tribes, defected down south and... Asa had them, and God blessed them. I like it, too, that it says that the Lord initiated this message. God sent the prophet to Asa. It's easy for us to realize how vulnerable we are when we're facing an army a million strong, but we don't realize how vulnerable we are after a time of great victory. Asa was. God sent the prophet to him to say, you're, you're, you're vulnerable in this moment of victory, lest you think that now you can coast. A time of victory leaves us just as vulnerable as a time of weakness. Vulnerable to pride or to complacency or to the deception that because things are going well, we can kind of put our spiritual lives on autopilot, put the cruise control on, and we can never do that. There is no cruise control. There is no autopilot in the spiritual life. We've got to constantly have our hand on the wheel, one foot on the brake, and one foot on the gas. I know your instructor told you not to do that, but in the spiritual life, you've got to. You've always got to be ready. I had an uncle one time that used to drive like that with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, depressing both at the same time, kind of working it like... And you drive behind him, and he always had his brake light on, so you weren't really ever sure what was happening. Oh, drove me nuts. Uncle Royce, what a great guy. That's the spiritual life. Uncle Royce had it right in the metaphor of the spiritual life. You're always ready for whatever needs to happen, always dependent on God. Now, we're not going to read the rest of chapter 15, but it talks of Asa's further reforms including burning grandma's Asherah pole. If you want to see exactly where that was, uh, where is it? Verse 16. He removed Maaka, the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah, cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it in the brook Kidron. And then look at verse 18. He brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So Asa... He's going all out. He is donating to the Lord his, from his own personal wealth and putting it in the house of God. So, so far, Asa gets a standing ovation. Wonderful. Great job, Asa. But now, look at chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah, in order to prevent anyone from going out 
or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. No big deal, right? Oh, it's a big deal. Big, big deal. This is sort of like, imagine that you live in a cul-de-sac and terrorists have blocked off the entrance to it. You've got to get rid of them. You, there, if there's only one way in and one way out from the north, that is unacceptable. The king of the north, Basha, came down and fortified Ramah, which is just like five miles north of Jerusalem, along the main highway. So Asus realizes this can't happen. I have got to retain control of that area at all costs. So what does Asa do? Easy. Just trust God like before, right, Asa? Oh, don't you wish he had. Look at verse 2. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Aijan, Dan, Abel Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Basha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Basha had been building, and with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. In other words, where did Asa get the silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord? We saw it back in the previous chapter, verse 18. He had put it there. He took back what he had given to the house of the Lord. Maybe in his mind he justified, you know, it was mine to give, mine to take back. I don't know how he justified it. But he didn't trust God in this instance. Instead, he tried to buy off a foreign pagan king. Because in his desperation, he just thought, I've got to have that land back. There's no time to wait on God. And here's the scary part. It worked. And in our lives, when we decide, you know what? I'm really not going to trust God on this one. I mean, I trust the Lord. Maybe he's providing through my wisdom in this moment. And I'm going to do things my way. So rather than wait on God or take God into counsel at all, we just handle it. We just write the check. We just show up and take charge or whatever it is. And it works. And this can be a terrible confirmation that our flesh is the way to respond to things. This is what happened with Asa. I read uh, about a Nevada state trooper who pulled over a hearse that was driving in Las Vegas in the carpool lane or the high occupancy vehicle lane. <laughs> it's just the one guy driving along. The trooper calls him and says, you know what, you're, you're supposed to have somebody else. And he says, oh, I got somebody else right in the back. And the trooper says, no, he needs to be a living person. It's funny how we can twist the situation to benefit ourselves at times, can't we? Well, it was my money I donated to the house of the Lord. I'll just take that money right back. He felt it was okay to do. 
There was a, a Confederate soldier named George Dixon in the early days of the Civil War. His fiance gave him a twenty gold, twenty dollar gold piece. I looked this up on the internet so you know it's true. <laughs> no, actually, there is. You can look up George Dixon's gold coin. If you look that up, you can see it. And it was he. He had it in his pocket, and he was shot in. I guess wherever the pocket is. What's that? In the shot in the coin. There you go. He was shot in the coin, and his coin. The coin saved him. You know, from from being hit and from bleeding. And you can look at this coin, and it's just bent like the letter C. It's just got this curve in it. And it became a good luck piece for this guy. I mean, you can, I guess, sort of understand why. And he was often seen sort of in, holding it in his hand, needing it, you know, during battles and things like this. Well, he actually served on the, uh, uh, the submarine back in the Civil War. They actually had a submarine called the CSS Hunley. Well... Submarine sank. Dixon died. The good and the luck piece didn't work out. But they found the Hunley, and they found Dixon's gold coin. They're right next to Dixon's remains. And the, the coin you can see in some museum today. But I thought, you know what? Interesting. The coin didn't save him. In, in a similar way, Ace's response was to take the silver and gold, the very things he had dedicated to God, to buy help from a foreign king. Why would Asa do that? Why? When he had faith to gain victory over an army a million strong further south, why would he all of a sudden freak out and feel like he had to buy off help from this pagan king? Because God took something from Asa, Asa trusted in more than God. That land. He had to have it. And so, he did. Here's a principle from Asa that we can learn. God may take what we most trust in so that we learn to trust him alone. God may take what we most trust in so we learn to trust him alone. You see, it's no problem to trust God with what we already trust God with. It's easy. We already do it. But when God takes something from us that we're not yet trusting him for, him with, that makes it harder. Lord, I trust you with the fact that I lost my job. Lord, I trust you with my health. Great. What about your kids? You trust God with your kids? Your grandkids? You trust God to lead their lives without the wisdom from you? That's hard. Believe me, I know it's hard. I got kids who think they can hear from God without asking my opinion. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You know it's true. <laughs> it is true, isn't it? We struggle trusting God with everything. We love to trust God with the things it's easy to trust God with. We struggle trusting God with everything. And God may take what we most trust in so that we learn to trust him alone. Think about the Old Testament. The Hebrews were required a sacri to sacrifice a perfect animal, no blemishes. That's money. They were required to tithe from the very best of their crop. God required the firstborn of livestock to be sacrificed, the firstborn sons to be dedicated to God. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, 
Abraham loved Isaac. Abraham had been waiting 25 years for Isaac. And here's the thing. Abraham was tested that he might give back to God what Abraham knew God wanted him to have. And now God wants it back? Yes, sometimes God may take what we trust most in so that we can learn to trust him alone. Such an interesting statement that Job made after his children were killed. He said, what I feared most has come upon me. And then he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Jesus has no less of a standard for us. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Not just 99%, all. Remember in Capernaum one day, Jesus was there and basically gave a pretty hard command. You can read about it in John chapter 6. And it says around verse 66, some of his disciples decided no longer to walk with him. They just thought, you know, that's it. We're done. That is too hard. Who can accept this? And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter, bless his heart, Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Great answer, Peter. But boy, what a hard assignment, a tough assignment in life. Sometimes Jesus does say hard things and require hard things, so much so that if there wasn't anywhere else to go, we'd be in the line leaving. But there's nowhere else to go. We have to understand that maybe the limitation is with our ability to understand it, but not our ability to believe it. We can believe the Lord, but we're not going to understand the Lord. God may allow a time of removal so that we recognize to trust him alone. Well, Asa chose to revert his trust elsewhere, and look what happened. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Now look at this next verse. For the eyes of the Lord strongly move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Craig Barnes wrote these words, insightful words. Listen to what he wrote. The deep fear behind every loss is that we have been abandoned by the God who should have saved us. The transforming moment in Christian life comes when we realize that even God has left us. We then discover it was not God, but it was our image of God that abandoned us. Only then is change possible. You see, God doesn't abandon us, but our false image of what we think God should be abandons us because it's a false image of what God is. 
this was a part of Asa's heart that he would not surrender to God. So the prophet gave Asa and us a wonderful truth, and from it we get a wonderful principle. It's the, here's the second principle. God desires our trust so that he may do marvelous things in our lives. We read it right there in verse 9. I just paraphrased the very verse that we read. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Why? Why do the eyes of the Lord move? We're told that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. See, God is watching. God is looking all throughout the earth, which is a little bit hard for us to understand. So let's bring it down to something real for us. He's in this class. He's looking at the hearts of everybody in this room. Why? Why? So that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is your heart completely God's? Or is there some little piece of land that you're not going to give over to him? We've all got those little things, don't we? We've all got those little things. Have you ever read the little piece called My Heart, Christ's Home? It's, I think the navigators had it in a some 2-7 book or something. But it's a great little story. Uh, you're, you're at home, and you hear a knock on the door, and you open it up. What do you know? It's the Lord. He comes on in. And you begin to talk, and after a while, he begins to kind of sniff. And he smells. He says, I smell something that stinks. And you begin to panic because you know exactly what he's thinking about. And he begins to look around. Everything's immaculate. Everything's looking great. He begins to go upstairs. No, don't go upstairs. He goes upstairs, and there's this hall closet at the end of the closet. Everything else is fine. He's been to every other room. He gets to the hall closet, and it's locked. Where's the key? Well, you know, I, where's the key? Finally opens that thing up, and it is full of putrid, stinking things in your house. And he turns and looks at you and says, why do you have this here? And we have no answer. Those are the sinful things we have cherished and decided we are not going to give up to God. Well, the story goes on that God begins cleaning out that closet. And eventually it's all clean, and the house no longer smells. Our heart, Christ's home. Our heart, Christ's home. This is what he wants for us. He wants us to be fully devoted to him, not because he's got an ego. He wants us to be fully devoted for him because, as the text says, so that he may strongly support us when our heart is completely devoted to him. Asa didn't do that. Asa was great up until God said, let's open the closet. And when the closet was opened, Asa was not willing to help clean out the trash. We've got to be willing to do that. Otherwise, we've got to face the rest of life like Asa did. From now on, you shall have wars. We've got lots of wars, don't we? Lots of wars. God designs our, desires our trust so that he may do marvelous things in our lives. Such a great principle, such an essential truth. Well, look at verse 10. Wouldn't it be great if Asa had responded well? Then Asa was angry with the seer 
and put him in prison. For he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. Verse 12, his disease was severe, yet even. The Hebrew is literally, yet also. Why does it say that? Because the the author is making a connection. This is the same thing he did with Basha. He also did it with his feet. That he didn't seek the Lord, he sought help from people. He sought the physicians for his feet. He sought the king of Aram to help with his battle. He didn't seek the Lord. In many different ways, the Lord was trying to get Asa's attention. It started off pretty easy. Just take care of grandma's pole. No problem. Done. Next, go down south. You don't really care about that land down there. Face the Ethiopians and trust me. Amen, let's do it, Lord. I need your help. You came through, fantastic. But now God points at the closet. Asa wasn't willing. Now God afflicts his own, his feet. And even then, we're told, Asa did not seek the Lord, but sought the physicians. And then we're even told that he he got angry with the, the seer, as if it's the seer that's the problem. Seer's not the problem. God's the one that told Asa this. But he puts the seer in prison, and he oppresses the people. What did the people do? Nothing. But sometimes when you've got somebody like this that's responding, it's just there's just indiscriminate casualties from a life out of control. I once heard of a CEO who was approached by a fellow C-level executive. The, the executive actually told me this that said that the CEO was treating his employees harshly and uh, wasn't fitting for a Christian ministry. It was actually a, a nonprofit ministry. And the CEO basically responded by rebuking the words of this fellow executive and demanding more work time from the employees. And I remember that story. I'll never forget this, uh, this guy telling me that. And then when I read about Asa, I thought, wow, that still happens. It still happens. Asa began with a passion for God, removed idolatry, rededicated the nation, but then he panics. And when Asa was rebuked for it, if you do the math, God gave him three more years to repent, and he didn't. So God put a crippling disease in his feet for two years, and he didn't repent. And then finally he dies. And notice the purpose for the disease, because it says here, Even then, he did not seek the Lord. The purpose for that disease is that he would seek the Lord, but he didn't. He sought physicians instead. Our afflictions have a purpose. They shine a spotlight on that closet. They shine a spotlight on the truth that is just as true in prosperity that that is true in affliction. That is, we are totally dependent on the Lord, 100%. So what's God doing in your life right now to get your attention, like Asa? You're probably doing well, as I am, in certain areas. Great. Keep it up. But there are other areas that God is also spotlighting where we keep that closet locked. 
unlock it. Open it. Allow the Lord to deal with it. Those two principles, once again, God may take what we most trust in so that we will trust in him alone. And second, God desires our trust so that he may do marvelous things in our lives. Let's pray. Among all the kings, our father Asa is such a quandary. What an amazing godly man he was, and yet struggled to give you full surrender. Thank you for your love for this king, for this person, just like us. Thank you for your love for us, for your ongoing, patient grace in our lives that continue to call and to call and to call us back to you and to call us to deeper levels of commitment. Not the same level when we were saved, but to grow, to go deeper, to be willing to open those closets and surrender to you our whole life, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and strength, without exception. Father, this is a tough assignment, and we can't do it without you. And in that great moment when Asa prayed before the army of a million, he said, we don't have anybody but you, Lord, to help us, to help the weak. And so we come to you and ask for your grace in our lives. Whatever it is, whether it's our children, whether it's our money, whether it's our retirement, whether it's our health, whether it's just our attitude every day, that we would surrender to you and allow you to be the God that you are. And in so doing, we expect, because you promise it, not presumptuously, but we expect that when we are fully devoted to you, as your word says, that you will strongly support us. Thank you for that. And we'll trust you with this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. So, what area of life is God shining his spotlight in your life? Now, there's probably a lot of areas where you're doing great, but I hope that this podcast about King Asa inspires you to go deeper, to allow the Lord to work on those locked up areas that still need to be dealt with. Believe me when I tell you, I am right there in the trenches with you. Well, next time we're switching gears and taking a closer look at Christmas. The humble birth of Christ shows us that the way up is actually down. I hope you'll join me for this special Christmas episode. By the way, if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me to keep it going so that together we can encourage others to live the Bible. You can give a tax-deductible gift to help this podcast go into the lives of literally thousands of people every week. To give a one-time or a monthly donation, just go to livethebiblepodcast.com and click on the Donate button. That's livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much. Until next week, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. 
Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.